Welcome to another edition of the Always Be Testing Podcast with your host, Ty DeGrange. Get a guided tour of the world of growth, performance marketing, customer acquisition, paid media, and affiliate marketing. We talk with industry experts and discuss experiments and their learnings in growth, marketing, and life. Time to nerd out, check your biases at the door, and have some fun talking about data-driven growth and lessons learned. Hello, welcome to the Always Be Testing podcast. I'm your host, Ty DeGrange, and I'm really excited to talk to John Blair today. What's going on, John? Hey, what's happening, Ty? It's, uh, yeah, it's not too often that I get to talk to someone who's not that far away from me physically, but virtually, right? I'm usually talking to people on the other side of the country, but it's always nice to talk to someone local in the Austin area. Absolutely. We got a couple of uh, Austin Texans here. And also, we got we got a performance marketer, and uh, John brings with us a ton of CFO and finance experience. So, all things D to C finance. We're going to dive in. We're going to talk about it. It's going to be fun. For those of you who don't know John, just want to give a bit of an intro. So he's the CEO of Free to Grow CFO. I did I get that right? <laughs> it's a tongue twister. Yep, Free to Grow CFO. But he's been CFO, Chief Operating Officer at a number of D to C brands. He's seen a ton of reps in D2C. So maybe you can kind of just kick off by giving us your background from your perspective and what you how you kind of got into things. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually started originally going to business school in a place in Central California called Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. And yeah, I, I went to school to get into an accounting degree, but I always wanted to become an entrepreneur, which is funny because the accounting departments in the business schools around the country they're all geared to become a big four public accountant, right? Go work for one of the big four CPA firms. And so every, all my business school cohorts were like, well, what are you doing here in the accounting program if you're going to be an entrepreneur? And I'm like, I get it. I understand it. I enjoy it. And I like the finance and accounting piece of, of the house. And so right when I graduated, I immediately went against the grain and I, I went to go work for, honestly, a crappy paying job, 15 bucks an hour to be the accounting manager and all things right-hand man of a local entrepreneur. So I was, depending on who I was talking to, I was the accounting manager, the logistics manager, the marketing manager, the customer service manager, but I was the right hand of the serial entrepreneur who at the time, this was back in 2009, he was selling product D to C. He had an electrical background and he, he would go out there, find these little white spaces in these niche markets in consumer electronics. He would engineer the product, go to a factory in China, get them to make it, import containers, and sell them direct to consumer on his website. And back then, 3PLs weren't what they are today. And we did we did a lot of the pickpacking, shipping ourselves out of the storage unit. It was like the early heydays of like small time, like D to C shops, right? And so working for him, his name was Ron Merritt. Like the entrepreneurial bug was just like seeded in me immediately coming out of college. And he ended up introducing me to the founders of Guardian Bikes, the most recent D to C brand that I was on the founding team of. They had uh, the, the original founder, Brian Riley, he invented a bicycle brake that prevents you from flipping over the handlebars. We graduated business school the same year and he launched the business back in 2009 and he needed a moonlighting like finance accounting guy. And so like nights and weekends while I went on and worked at other early stage, fast growing consumer brands, 
I was always Guardian Bikes, uh, moonlighting accountant and finance guy. And the dream was like, eventually Guardian Bikes is gonna make enough money that we can hire John away from his full-time role to come on board full-time. And so fast forward actually six years, it took six years to get the break from an R&D perspective, like commercializable and actually retrofitable on existing bike brands that like Schwinn and Huffy and those big names. And what we found was the company was actually kind of getting like blocked from being mass adopted by these big bike brands because we had pricing power. We had patents on this brake and everyone else in the bike supply chain has no pricing power. And Walmart and Target grind the margins down of these bike brands to like nothing. And so they were scared to death that the word would get out about our brakes and they would get forced to like eat one to $2 in their bill of materials. And they didn't have one to $2 in their margin, believe it or not. And we decided like, hey, we got to go direct to consumer and we have to launch our own brand and we have to tell the story about our brakes and why they're safer. And so we launched Guardian Bikes back in 2016 as a direct to consumer brand selling the safest kids bikes direct to your door featuring our sure stop brake system. During that time, I still had a full-time job elsewhere, again, working at other early stage, fast growing companies, but we were working on raising capital and the uh, founder, Brian, decided, hey, I'm going to go on Shark Tank. And so uh, he ended up, took a year of diligence. I had to manage all the diligence and the background and everything. But he got on stage, did a deal with Mark Cuban. And the plan was like, hey, we closed Mark's money. It was 500K. John, you come on board full time, CFO and COO, and run all things operations and finance. So it actually took a year of negotiating to close that deal. A year later in 2017, Closed the deal, quit my full-time job, jumped on board full-time at Guardian. And from 2017 to 2021, we had a crazy scaling journey where we took this e-commerce kids bike brand from $0 pre-revenue to really healthy eight figures in just about three and a half, four years. And during that time, being COO and CFO running all things like inventory planning, supply chain management, fulfillment, and then on the CFO side of the house, projections, forecasting, budgeting, cash management, debt, fundraising, accounting. I had basically built this playbook of like, what is the underlying structure and tools that you need to scale a fast-growing e-commerce brand with intelligence and with confidence? And as, you know, coming out of like year four, I just really was ready for like the next thing. And so I talked to the the other people on the founding team and said, hey, I'm ready to move on to something else and I want to start my own thing. And so I replaced myself and, you know, still part owner in the company, but just resigned as an employee. And at the beginning of 2021, I was doing some soul searching after taking a couple of months off. And I was like, you know, where my heart lies, my heart lies at that beginning earlier stage where you're like early stage of an emerging brand where things are growing really fast and they're kind of chaotic. You don't have all the systems and processes in place. You're like building the plane while you're flying it, right? And so many brands in that situation, they don't have a CFO. Their bookkeeper cannot provide the forward-looking insights and recommendations that are needed to help the CEOs and founders fly the plane, right? But the, the other challenge is, you don't need one full-time and nor can you afford one full-time at that stage. And so I decided to found Free to Grow CFO. And what we are is we're an outsourced finance firm 
that works exclusively with growing e-commerce brands and our e-commerce fractional CFO and bookkeeping services, what we do is we give e-commerce brands the finance expertise that they need to scale alongside healthy profit, cash flow, and confident decision-making, but without all the full-time overhead of having a full-time in-house finance team. And so fast forward to today, it's a little over a year and a half later since I started Free to Grow CFO. It's been a huge blessing that it's caught on like wildfire. I now have two more CFOs on the team, a co-founder and business partners, one of them and a third. And then a lot of my accounting team from Guardian Bikes has since followed me here. And we have a whole back office e-commerce accounting team. And what we're just finding is we've just found a really fun place to come alongside visionary leaning founders who are usually product oriented, marketing oriented, sales oriented. And we can give them all the insights and the visibility that they need to make those scaling decisions with confidence instead of like out of fear not having numbers and insights to really help guide where they go. So that's a little bit about where I came from and where I'm at today. That's awesome. Very cool. I love that. There's a ton in there to kind of unpack and talk about, a ton of directions we can go. So congratulations. And I love just hearing the the journey. It's really impressive. Maybe reeling, reeling back the, the clock a little here and thinking back to the genesis, starting out in accounting when did you know, even before that, that entrepreneurship was just like your jam? How did you kind of uncover that even before college? I always had a crazy idea. I had started t-shirt companies. I'm born and raised in Southern California, so huge skateboarding culture in the when I was an adolescent. And so I started skateboard companies. I made my own decks by buying blank. I sourced blank decks and I literally created stencils and spray painted our logos on them. I figured out how to make stickers by like printing our logo on Avery labels and literally taping over them. My lamination was like clear packaging tape, but then like cutting them out with stencils, right? And like none of those things ever made money. But um, you fast forward a little bit further. I'm also a musician. I played in bands my whole life and I actually... When I a year after I graduated from business school, my band that I started, actually a thrash metal band, we got signed to a record label. And I took six months off from even working for Guardian nights and weekends to record a record and go on tour. And there's nothing more entrepreneurial than trying to make a living in a band. You're just a marketing company. You're a content company, right? You're a content marketing company and your content is <laughs> your music, right? And then you're an apparel brand. That's all. And so I've always been an entrepreneur and like the, the, how I always knew, like in my heart that I needed to be an entrepreneur is like one, I always hated working for other people. I love working with teams and on teams, but I, I hate being boxed in my creativity being boxed in. It drives me insane. And I hate being told I can't, we can't do that. Right. I'm like, no, we can, it's possible. And I've always just gravitated towards being a leader. I was the one who like, hey guys, let's go play baseball at the park. There's no baseball stadium. Well, let's get four things that could be bases and let's get this and let's get that. Like I was always the one rounding people up to go do something or get something done. I love it. That's really cool. That's really cool. Now in your story there with with the Mark Cuban funding of Guardian Bikes, you had a really good comment. 
that the negotiation took a year. Now, was that for you or is that for Mark Cuban? <laughs> so, I mean, look, Mark was as a fantastic partner to Guardian Bikes. I still to this day feel very grateful. When I wasn't on the show, but the other two guys on the founding team who were full-time were on the show, but I worked for the company, was a part of all the diligence and like the strategy and going into the show, Mark was our first choice. Like we wanted Mark if we had the choice, right? The other two founders did a lot of research on like who the best sharks are and why. And like, so he's been a, was and has been a fantastic partner, but he's also a very sophisticated investor and businessman. And he has a team that is incredibly sophisticated. You're not, you're not negotiating with some guys that are just gonna make it a walk in the park, right? And to be true to be told, they were pretty transparent with us. They told us like, hey, listen, most we already had raised a couple million dollars. It, the company had been around for six years. So we'd already raised a couple million dollars in seed funding and already had sophisticated investors on the cap table. And so we couldn't just take any terms, right? We had we had people who had put seven figures in the business that, and so like, we definitely had to do right by them. And Mark's team told us, most of the people that we work with that come from the show, they have nothing. They maybe have put their own money in. They're just, they'll take whatever we give them and they don't, they're not sophisticated enough to, um, to negotiate this stuff. And so like, they're not trying to take advantage of you, but they're also doing what an investor would do, which is put an invest, investor-friendly deal in front of you, right? And so we were backed by a really solid legal firm, Cooley, out of, and uh, their emerging businesses division and had already raised money from sophisticated investors. And so we had to come at it. And truth be told, Brian Riley, the CEO and founder from Guardian Bikes, like he is an incredibly intelligent person and- I consider myself a pretty good negotiator now, but uh, I'm really good at negotiating debt deals. That's my specialty. But he taught me a lot about how to think about equity deals. And like, there was just a lot of stuff to go through and a lot of little gotchas. Like they have, they can approve this. And if this happens, they have that right. And I mean, the documents are no joke. When they delivered them to us, Mm -hmm. there was four different agreements. It was well over a hundred pages of language. So like, that's why it took a year. Of course. No, I love that background. Now, looking back, seeing the path of Guardian Bikes, do you think that the team would have gone through the Shark Tank experience again if they had their their choice? Yeah, I think so. What's interesting is that like the Shark Tank experience is vastly different depending on I will say not the Shark Tank experience. I will say what the Shark Tank, if you think about the episode as like a top of funnel, like marketing event, right? Which is really what it is. And there's reruns and Mm -hmm. episodes get sold to another network and they rerun years later. Like we still have reruns today of the original episode and sometimes in other countries. So like there's this recurring top of funnel awareness campaign basically going on. It's always been fantastic. But in terms of like every time one of those goes off, what kind of sales impact is there for Guardian Bikes? Very little because the AOV is 350 bucks, right? But when you have like Squatty Potty, probably crushed it because you buy it for 19.99. What we learned is like when you have a low AOV impulse buy product, every time it airs, you'll see a huge spike in sales, right? 
And we would always see a huge spike in traffic. Sometimes we wouldn't even know a, a, a rerun was happening. And we go log into Shopify and we're like, whoa, why did so many people hit the site yesterday? And not that many bought the conversion rates down, but a bunch of people went to the site and you would Google it. And lo and behold, there was some obscure network in another mm-hmm. country rerunning our episode. And so like, yep. there's a lot of awareness. A lot of people, it forced us to figure out how to do email capture because like, at the beginning, we really sucked at email capture. We didn't even know, we didn't get the value of that. And all these people go to our site from a, from the episode, but then they're gone, right? Like if I don't get their email, they're gone. It's like, they don't exist. And it's like, no, what you sold is what you sold and you hope they come back. And so we started figuring out like, hey, we got to capture people's emails. We got to get email flows built out and we've got to email them regularly so that we're top of mind. And then all of a sudden, Q4 holiday season, we get a bunch of purchases, they do our exit survey, and lo and behold, all these people found us on Shark Tank, right? So in one respect, it's a challenge because it's like this, it's like this ghost segment of traffic that you have like no visibility into, and they just show up to your website and like pass through. And you're like, they either buy or they don't. And you're like, damn it. But it really forced us to figure out like, how do we get people to give us their email and provide value to them? Because the other thing about our product a $350 bike is a premium bike. And you know, from being a parent, like you buy some really high price premium stuff for your kids, but then there's other stuff that you're like, I'm buying the cheapest thing because they're going to destroy this, right? And so a $350 bike is not something that people just go impulse buy. You have to sell them on the value, right? Over time and go like, hey, it's this much because your kid's safety and the brakes and this, and how much is their safety worth? But you don't get that point across on one website visit. And so it really taught us a lot about how to build a, capture an email and build a relationship and prove out the value of our product over time so that when there was that birthday or that whatever, like bar mitzvah or that Christmas, then bam, the purchase gets made and and they buy a Guardian bike. You're sounding like a marketer uh, as well as a finance uh, guy, which I like to hear. I mean, honestly, in the e-commerce world, if your finance people don't understand something about marketing, you're, it's a huge impediment to the business because advertising is the lifeblood of your margin as you're scaling. And in the D2C e-com world, you have immediate data feedback and like, so you can't make decisions only from a financial lens or you'll trick yourself into making decisions that are actually suboptimal in the long run. Nice to hear from a finance person. I think it it's going to blend perfectly into our conversation around that collaboration between finance and marketing. Before we get there, I'd love to dive into, you know, you've seen so many interesting reps, you know, from Guardian Bikes to Free to Grow CFO with all the D2C brands that you see and work with. What are some of the learnings? Obviously, always be testing and learning is a huge theme for us in this discussion in this pod. What are some of the learnings you've seen that are that you really want to share with the audience? Yeah, so um, there's a lot, but the the ones that come to mind immediately, like the first one is something that I didn't coin this, actually a prospect I was talking to uh, that I'm still nurturing to this day. And I actually, I used this in a LinkedIn post and someone was like, that's an amazing analogy. And I actually tagged him. I said, no, this comes from this guy. But it's this concept of the LTV piggy bank, right? And like what the LTV piggy bank is, is that you can trick yourself into making your margins, thinking your margins are getting better, 
by just shutting off ad spend. And if you have people already in your funnel and you have some sort of recurring purchases, your margins all of a sudden look super fat because you're not spending anymore on new customer acquisition and you're still getting purchases because you're ringing in, you're cashing in the LTV piggy bank, meaning that the, the LTV piggy bank has a finite amount of money in it, right? You're taking out like a quarter at a time as your existing customer base is repurchasing from you. But if you don't fill that piggy bank back up with ad spend that acquires new customers, eventually your LTV piggy bank will run dry and you won't care that your margin looks really great because revenue will dive so incredibly fast that you're going to be out of business. And so the learning there is you have to dial in. I would even say that like new customer acquisition isn't more important than LTV and vice versa. They are equally important. And you will always, as you're scaling an e-com brand, have to work on balancing the two of those. And there's going to be, be periods where your new customer acquisition is going to be more of your revenue. And then there's going to be periods where LTV-driven repeat purchases are more of your revenue. It's never going to be in perfect balance. But you're almost like, as you're scaling, you're always fighting to keep those things in balance, right? And as soon as they're in equilibrium, you reach a ceiling on a channel or a ceiling on a product line, or you reach some sort of a ceiling in your marketing mix, and then you have to recalibrate the balance between new customer acquisition and LTV. And unfortunately, in the wake of like, in the aftermath of the iOS 14 updates, so many brands are like, Facebook doesn't work. And you know how I know it doesn't work? I cut my ad spend and my profit soared. But six months later, those brands were like, dude, we got to figure out how to start spending on Facebook again because like sales dried up. And it's because they just rang in their LTV piggy bank for six months. And the problem is you get back on spending for new customer acquisition, going from zero to where you were six months ago can't be done overnight, right? You have to build it up a little bit at a time and you've got to have fresh creative ready to go. You got to have the whole process ready to go. People think that ad buying, this kind of leads me to another trap or learning that people think ad buying is just hiring someone who's like, understands how to use the platform and understands the bidding system and understands top, mid, and lower funnel metrics. Like That couldn't be further from the truth. I actually, it drives me insane and it it hurts my heart because I have some clients I love who like have been burned by agencies in the past. And so they think the only way to go is to just save money on a single ad buying freelancer. And I'm like, guys, we can't do that. Like, Someone's got to be working on the landing pages. Someone's got to, someone and iterating and learning and going like, hey, this change didn't work. Someone's got to be iterating on the creative. Someone's got to be sitting there not working on any of that stuff and saying, the audience I'm trying to talk to, what is the hook in the ad that's even going to get them to click, right? And then once they get to the landing page, how do we expand upon that hook and get them to a CTA where they'll land somewhere where they can buy something? And so the point is that like, I think there's this trap out there. No, there is this trap out there that like, that ad buying isn't holistic. It's not a whole process and a system. It's just either a talented ad buyer or a crappy ad buyer. And the reality is marketing is a system. And it's a system that unfortunately, whether you like it or not, it's always freaking changing. 
as soon as like you think you're at cruising altitude, something shifts and you've got to be on your toes ready to go and you better have new creative ready to go and you better have resources ready to start iterating on your landing pages or whatever. Like, and so it, it's a process and it's a system and there are multiple players that have to kill it and it never stops. It is a feedback loop and it never, ever ends. I think a lot of brands think like, hey, we updated the site, we updated these landing pages, we put fresh creative out, autopilot now. But while that stuff is being tested and you're killing the losers and scaling up the winners, you literally have to be working on the next round of creative and landing pages and everything that you're gonna launch months from now. And so I've seen even very talented brands scale up to like 50, 60 million and get comfortable with their marketing mix. And then all of a sudden it stops working and they were not ready with the next round of fresh stuff that they were going to pull in, fresh channels, fresh fresh creative, fresh landing pages. And so they actually, revenue took a dive for a couple months. It took them two to three months to get all that stuff built back up and then deployed. And so you just can't ever stop and it's a system. Yeah, so it's a reminder and a, essentially a, a call to action for really diversification and just having some things ready and teed up and having some of those experiments. And I, I couldn't agree more. The system is what we live and breathe every day. And we've seen the movie so many times with brands. Uh, it sounds like we've seen a lot of similar things in terms of like the metrics, right? You know, from the CFO's view of a D2C brand that's growing and trying to figure things out, what are some of those really core metrics that you want to keep a pulse on and making sure that they're healthy and headed in the right direction? So more and more, we are focusing from a PL perspective, more and more, we are focusing on two things. And these aren't the only two things that we work on, but these are the two that don't lie. You might have to double click into submetrics of this if they're heading in the wrong direction. But how is ROAS or marketing efficiency ratio, which we like to call MER, some people don't call it that, but marketing efficiency ratio takes forever to say. So how ROAS or MER are moving in correlation or not with contribution margin dollars. Because, and the reason why you have to look at both of those is because ROAS can go down and contribution margin dollars can go up. And contribution margin dollars from a profitability standpoint is what you should be optimizing for. If you get zeroed in on only ROAS or MER, you can actually make decisions that hurt your profitability. Oftentimes when MER and ROAS are going up, so is contribution margin dollars. But there's a point where MER starts coming down as you're scaling ad spend. And if you're able to scale revenue volume higher then your MER or ROAS drops, you actually can generate more contribution margin dollars. And, and what a lot of people don't understand contribution margin dollars are, they're the dollars that are left over after fulfilling and paying for marketing to fulfill an order and get it to the end customer. It's the dollars that are left to pay for your fixed operating costs. And then once, once contribution margin dollars pays for your fixed operating costs, every dollar of contribution margin dollars goes directly to your bottom line profitability. And so I have seen brands successfully scale up ad spend so fast that, yeah, their MER and ROAS comes down, but they scale up revenue so much faster through scaling ad spend 
it generates more contribution margin dollars. And the thing is, contribution margin dollars are going like this. Your fixed overhead is staying like this. And so what are you seeing? That delta is a bigger, bigger, bigger and bigger gap. And that's your profitability. That's your bottom line profit dollars. And so it's uh, we watch those two like a hawk because if they're going in the wrong direction, then we get into the metrics that are behind those to figure out why they're going in the wrong direction. I'd say the other one on the PL, obviously we're looking at fixed overhead trends as well, because if you see fixed overhead stair stepping up with contribution margin dollars, then that gap between the two is staying the same and your profit isn't going up. You're scaling margin dollars, but your profit's staying the same. And so like Murr and Roaz contribution margin dollars and fixed overhead tell the story that we need told from the CFO perspective. And we do something kind of unique on contribution margin. It's actually really unique. Other CFO firms don't do this. We split out contribution margin into two different sections, actually three. We look at gross margin, which is gross margin is just product costs. So what's your margin after just product costs? Then we look at what we call contribution margin before marketing, which is what is your margin after product costs and fulfillment and credit card fees. And then we look at contribution margin after marketing. And because we have those three different metrics, we can time series each of those out. And when I look at those graphs, we build dashboards for our clients that graph those. When I look at those graphs, I immediately can say, contribution margin went down and you have a fulfillment problem. Or marketing's doing great, fulfillment's great. It's, it is your product cost that's killing you. Or product cost of fulfillment, fantastic. Marketing is killing you. And so we're able to diagnose that really fast with the way that we break out contribution margin into those three different segments. And then on the, on the other side of the financials, on the balance sheet cash flow side, we're always looking at what's called the cash conversion cycle. And the cash conversion cycle basically measures how efficiently you're managing inventory, receivables if you have receivables, and then payables. And basically, the higher, the more days of inventory you have on hand or the more days it takes to collect your receivables or the less days it takes to pay your vendors, your cash is not sitting in your bank account. It's sitting on warehouse shelves or in your customer's bank accounts or in your vendor's bank accounts. And so we have time series graphs and the dashboards that we build and connect to our client's accounting system that shows how inventory days are going up or down, AR days are going up or down, and AP days are going up and down. And what we can do is say, hey, look, we're profitable, but you know why you have no cash? Because we just keep stocking more and more and more and more inventory. And so all our profit is sitting in our 3PL. Or guys, we're paying our vendors in three days. Is there any way we can get payment terms and pay them in 30 days? Because that means the cash sits in our bank account for longer. And so we look at a lot of things, but the major things we look at are contribution margin, fixed overhead, Murr and ROAS, and the cash conversion cycle. Love that. It's, it's a similar to kind of some of the macro metrics that we look like look at as an agency and a lot of times we're we're getting into some of this counsel with clients ourselves talking about measuring mer and roas over time measuring contribution margin and seeing what that impact is so it's really great to hear it's really great to kind of understand how you're counseling d2c brands on ways to be more financially healthy which is huge. It helps us. We're, we're speaking a similar language and everything we do, we want to be profitable. Um, we see a lot of brands that are doing things 
incorrectly in the finance vertical. So this is this is really helpful. Maybe maybe a good segue into kind of what we talked about previously into the importance of kind of that developing that partnership between performance marketing in particular and finance. Obviously, some of those key metrics that you're looking at are part of it. I'm, I'm curious to know, in particular, like around running tests, like, you know, the elasticity tests on have you reached a ceiling in a channel or not, getting a correct attribution set up, running an incrementality test, something we've talked about a lot on this pod. I would love to maybe hear some some learnings that you've had around areas like that of performance marketing, and we can get into other ways that finance and marketing can kind of partner together. But I would love to hear, you know, maybe some other learnings you've had um, in in some of those other areas. It doesn't have to be those exactly, but curious to learn more. For sure. Well, yeah. So one is thinking about omni-channel pricing and testing omni-channel pricing. And specifically, there's a lot of like brands we work with that are Amazon and Shopify or Amazon and direct, right? And maybe you have a little bit of wholesale, but putting that aside, just looking at shop, sh- looking at your Shopify or D2C store and looking at Amazon, worked with a lot of brands that do testing of like what happens when we offer different prices on the two different channels, right? And also what happens if we scale up this is kind of like an incrementality test. We've done a lot of incrementality testing on Amazon where it's like, hey, we're spending $2 million a month on Facebook. Certainly there's cross-channel bleed over, right? Not every single one of those people is buying from our dot-com store. And you know, we most brands tend to allocate their top of funnel spend to the D2C PL. And so the D2C PL looks much crappier than Amazon does, but you can do, you know, done incrementality tests where like cut spend for a period, uh, top of funnel, scale it back up and see what happens on Amazon. It's very clear that they're connected, right? And so like you need to look at both channels P&Ls, which we help them set up and maintain from uh, as their fractional CFOs, but also keep in mind that like you need to look at the blended margin as well because there's 100% bleed over from that top of funnel spend, right? And so it comes back to attribution too, is that like attribution obviously is a super huge problem depending on who you talk to. I've got a bunch of different marketing resources who would tell us they have the perfect attribution stack. I tend to think there's doesn't exist a perfect one. And honestly, like I don't think you have to have a perfect one. I think you have to have a way to look at attribution from multiple perspectives and ultimately be able to tie it back to the PL and see what's happening with contribution margin dollars at the end of the day. That is what matters. Contribution margin dollars, end of story, that is what hits your bottom line PL. So, like, nothing else really matters. That is the result from a marketing standpoint. Contribution margin dollars is the bottom line from a marketing standpoint. And, like, I would say, like, in terms of learnings, one, make sure you have channel PLs. Like, I've, like, if you have an Amazon store and a dot-com store, you cannot run your business looking at one aggregated PL. You should look at aggregated PL and you need to look at the blended results, but you have to have separate PLs and you do your best to allocate ad spend to the right, you know, to the channel that it's directly driving. But realize and go test it yourself, do an incrementality test, scaling up and down spend and look at 
and look at the channel that you're not attributing that ad spend to, it's going up and down also, right? And so there are also some other things to, I think there are some people who like really hate the thought of like looking at, like some people hate the concept of myrrh. They're like, it's just lazy. And I agree, like you have to still look at platform. People complain all the time about platform attribution. And like, is it imperfect? A thousand percent it's imperfect, right? But if I see a platform attribution telling us that certain ad sets are killing it and I'm seeing revenue increase on the site and contribution margin dollars are going up, it's still pointing me in the right direction, right? And at the end of the day, contribution margin dollars and MER are telling me really how efficient I am at the company level. And so I really... And some people don't agree with this, but I think about using the platforms for directional, call it tactical moves, right? Tactical moves on a particular ad or ad set or campaign. And like that tells you the story of whether you should keep, kill, or scale something. But then you have to go back and look at like your entire marketing mix and calculate MER and contribution margin dollars and see if that directional indicator from the platform is showing up in your financials. And I can tell you right now, I rarely see those things, two things diverge. Now, if the Facebook platform says I'm getting a five row as my mer might only be three. And so it's not giving me the right number, but it's, it is when I see that five go to a five and a half, the mer on the mer for the entire company is going up also. So it is directionally accurate, you just have to take a step back and look at your whole marketing mix to, to assess how it's actually impacting your your margin. Yeah, I love that. And there's so many, you know, margin, mer, ROAS conversations that we're having. So to hear you speaking similar languages, counseling clients that really need help in, in D2C e-com is, is super helpful. And kind of just building on that, like to work what have you seen that really you love to see from performance marketing teams and the right types of in-house marketers and agencies and CMOs and VP of marketings and head of growth? Like what's really worked well? Obviously there are some things that you and I have gone through and experienced, but we'd love to get your take on how do you build that appropriate partnership between finance and marketing and, and maybe identify when it, when it's not optimal and what can be improved and, and, and fixed. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but step one, like the most important thing is I consider myself someone to, as, as fractional CM, CFOs for e-commerce brands, one of our primary jobs is to be the connective tissue between marketers and bottom line profitability and to not, here's what doesn't work, but I will tell you most CFOs do like cross their arms, hit this ROAS target. If you don't hit this ROAS target, cut spend back. That's not what we do. We try to get the marketers to understand the connection between what they do and increasing contribution margin dollars. And so when a marketer asks me, hey, John, is this ROAS okay? What is my next question always? Well, how much can you spend at that ROAS? Because if you can only spend $10,000 a day, like that's not okay. But if you can spend a, if you can spend $50,000 a day, yeah, please that ROAS is fantastic. We're going to crush it, bottom line profitability. So like I spend a lot of time connecting what the marketers are doing, their metrics, their funnel metrics that they're looking at back to contribution margin dollars. And that just has to be the North Star 
unless there are some exceptions, it's that like, hey, we're willing to take a contribution margin dollar hit, but in service of more contribution margin dollars later. So like when I've, I've had some ad buyers who are like some of the best out there that I've worked with that come to me and say, hey, John, I wanna break even in October, but here's what I'm gonna do in November to make that all back. And like, that is actually a very sophisticated strategy and it's not a bad one. And there's a number of reasons why that that is a good idea. Let's spend into the the holiday and let's be at an elevated level of spend so that when the the holiday buying you know frenzy starts, you're already up here. You don't have to scale up starting November first from down here, right? And so, when I hear guys who also come to me and say, "Hey, look," when they're actually talking to me about the difference between first order profitability and LTV payback period, that again I love to hear because. That is a real strategy that if you know how to do it well, crushes it. And and if you understand it, you actually start thinking about how to build your product line around it. Like some people don't have a product line that that'll even work, right? But like, hey, how could I potentially break even on my first order and get to a 50% margin two months in through repeat purchases? What products would I have to what I have to launch to make that possible, right? And so like, what I hate to hear, look, everyone else in the market's gonna be discounting, let's do a steep discount and let's just try to spend $100,000. I'm not against discounting at all, but the in service of what, right? And to generate what? And so anyways, the, the classic just, yep. oh yeah, I can spend, I can spend whatever you want. You just got to tell me what ROAS you're okay with, but I can spend whatever you want. When I hear that, it, that's just a lazy ad buyer. Yeah, hundred percent. We see that a lot, and I feel like th- that dogmatic, overly simplistic view is what what is not the right way to do it. What you're you're saying there needs to be, you know, a method to the madness, to the surge or the pullback or the approach to hit a particular ROAS or MER and the volume goals, and and is that tied to product line? Is that is there some strategy around when your competitors are doing it? Is there some seasonality approach to it? I think that that excites me to hear. And I think that um, there, there's just an opportunity to be more nuanced about it. There's there's too many brands and, and folks that think about it in a very, like I think, overly simplistic way, as you said. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing. What are some things that, you know, looking ahead, you know, with with holiday wrap up of year, you know, plans for next year, planning from a finance view from D to C, are there other kind of things that you're counseling clients on or maybe trends that you're seeing in in finance and in in general in D to C? What what are some of the maybe headwinds and tailwinds to be be considered in this uh, this space? I think a, a lot of what I'm counseling clients on right now are. I would say that the top topic right now, without a doubt, is that we're heading, October is a terrible month, just generally speaking. I have one client who's killing it, but it's because they sell goth clothing and October is like their Christmas, right? But they are the only (laughs) one. October's just a crappy month because people are just all, for most consumer products, because people are saving up for the holidays, right? And they're starting to look that's probably why Amazon did a second prime day in October, right? Like they, they want to try to flatten, mm-hmm. they want to try to like 
bring that that valley up a little bit. And you know, I've seen it for years and years and years and across a bunch of brands. And, and here's the challenge. You have big goals for November and December. You've already committed to your inventory for it. It's not all here yet, but it's on its way. And you already have to start thinking about Q1 and Q2. You haven't even sold through all of that inventory and Q1 and Q2 is right around the corner. And depending on your manufacturing lead times, you may have to start committing to orders with your vendors and you don't even know if you're gonna hit your goals for November or December or not. And it is hands down, it's the most stressful time of the year, every single year in the e-com world when you're growing. Because if you wanna hit your goals in Q1 and Q2, you probably have, you have to purchase even more than you did last year and you don't even have the data yet from Q4 of this year to tell you whether or not you're on that trajectory. And so I'm counseling my clients a lot on like, what are some risk mitigation strategies? Because scaling a brand is placing risk-adjusted bets. And a CFO should be an expert at placing bets that have that don't have unlimited downside. That's what a day trader does. A fantastic day trader doesn't just go make trades. They have stop limits that limit their downside. There's like unlimited upside, but limited downside, right? And that's a risk-adjusted bet. Poker players do the same exact thing, right? And a, a CFO should help you place bets that, yes, have risk, but always help you minimize or stop the downside risk. And so things that you can do uh, from this inventory planning dilemma perspective, make sure you have the right lender in place with the right debt that has the right payback period that you can stock up a little bit extra and you can pay it back next year once you get done with Q1 and Q2. And if you get a little bit overstocked, you just hold on future purchase orders while you sell through that inventory, pay back the loan, and then place your next orders. Other things you can do, you can split the difference of risk and go, I'm gonna buy 50% of what I want to, and I'm gonna tell my vendor like, hey, I might buy up to 50% more, and when's the last possible day I can place that order and just keep them in the loop and maybe release small incremental orders if you start seeing the data go in the right direction, but you're committing to the smallest possible purchase that you feel comfortable with instead of just placing an order for the home run all at one time and you're stuck with it, right? Also working with brands to think about, hey, actually, you might wanna air freight that stuff in. And yeah, air freight is freaking expensive, but your lead time can be reduced by, you know, four weeks. And so you're gonna take a lower gross margin, but you're gonna reduce the risk of getting, having all your cash tied up in too much inventory. And so let's place an ocean order for, some amount that we feel comfortable with that it optimizes our margin. And then let's place small air orders if we're beating our forecast. And yeah, our margin's gonna go down, but we're not getting too heavy on inventory and we're still driving incremental contribution margin dollars. So like there are ways to, when you have the right, if you have CFO perspective, they're guiding you, there's ways to place bets, but limit your downside. And I'm doing a lot of that right now from an inventory planning standpoint. Love that. Love the limiting of downside concept. I mean, John, this was jam-packed with information. So much to talk about in the CFO realm, in the performance marketing realm for D2C. I think there's just, I think we could almost do like a, a monthly or quarterly, like that's how deep dive we went, you went and just went off. This was awesome. So, so thank you. I, I do have one last personal question before we wrap up. What instrument did you play in your band? So I played guitar and sang. I still, right over here to my left, I still have my recording studio. I still record, write and record metal. Um, I'm not in a band, but I 
write and record and um and still sing and uh it's just a hobby I've had since I was five and and I don't I think I'll do it till the day I die even if I never step foot on a stage ever again. That's amazing. That's so cool. What what are some any any good metal uh, influences that should be considered or any any metal that inspired you? Yeah, I mean I I come all the classic thrash bands like early Metallica, Anthrax and um even some like there's some newer bands yep. or even like Pantera uh, newer bands like uh, mm-hmm. Kill Switch Engage and um, even a little bit of Slayer. I'm not quite so much into like their spiritual ideology, but their music is incredible and just was way ahead of their time. And so I'm just a sucker for really fast, heavy, but at the same time, melodic music. And so I I don't think I'll ever... Yeah, I was originally a piano player, classically trained and Classical piano is very metal in terms of like the the underlying music theory. And so I think I just never came off that thread as I became a guitar player. That's amazing. Love that. Love that. Music's come up a number of occasions on this on this pod and uh love to hear your your background and all your inspiration and in, in music. And I love to hear that you're still doing it. So thanks so much for joining us, man. This was chock full of tons of information for those interested to follow you and, and and learn more about what you're working on. Where would you suggest they go? Yeah. So you can follow me on LinkedIn, John Blair. You can also follow our firm on LinkedIn, free to grow CFO, our website, free to grow CFO.com. And, and you also follow us on YouTube. All of our video content makes it onto YouTube, tons of helpful tips and you can find us uh, under Free to Grow CFO on YouTube. So, yeah, and I'm honestly, I'm even the kind of guy that throws out there. If you want to email me, J O N John at free to grow CFO.com. Happy to be of service. Excellent. John, it's so awesome to see you chat, get into detail on all this fun stuff, and a lot more to talk about. We'll, we'll see you on the next one. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you. 